Hello and welcome to the Chris Yeh Podcast. This is, as always, Chris Yeh. I'm joined today by my old friend Ray Conley. We're going to be talking about an exciting project we're working on. Hopefully you'll give us some good feedback, as well as about some of the interesting elements of Ray's life. Ray, say hello. Hello, everyone. This is uh, very exciting to be here, Chris. Thanks. So we're catching Ray on a very busy day. It's a day in which he has sold his house and is getting ready to move to Nashville. So Ray, catch us up on what's been happening in your life. How did you get to this point? And what is it that's sending you from Silicon Valley to Nashville right now? Oh, man. Well, you caught me on uh, an incredible day, which I never thought about the timing of doing this podcast with aligning with this. So maybe there's something in the stars that, that, that caused us so we get a record of what happened. Um, I came to Silicon Valley in 1997. So good time. Uh, I, I will kind of say you didn't have to know how to play baseball in that market. You just had to have a bat to swing. Right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, found myself on Sand Hill road, uh, working for a family office, uh, that hadn't done venture capital before, uh, but were interested in it. And I got lucky to be really the only guy in the office who had a tech background. Um, and, uh, and so got to work on, on those projects. And so, you know, right place, right time and lucky, uh, is, is I think much more valuable than anything else in the investing business. And so that really kind of got my start in Silicon Valley. You know, we had a few companies go public and, uh, a lot of things worked out pretty well in that. And then of course, 2000 came, uh, and then what, we thought was easy, then turned into real lessons and <laughs> spent the next couple of years cleaning up the mess I had made. And then uh, joined Palo Alto Investors, uh, which was just down the street, only went from doing venture capital to doing public equity hedge fund uh, type things and did that for, uh, gosh, about seven years. Mm -hmm. And then started my own investment firm called Creekstone Capital and another uh, financial firm uh, called Finance Technology Leverage, which the acronym FTL really was faster my, than light, faster than light. Uh, I've, I've told my kids that if you can ever solve one problem that would have the greatest impact on humanity, it would be solving that problem, how to go faster in a speed of light. And some people say, well, you know, just because you're an aerospace geek, why is that? And I say it's because, you know, look, in a few billion years, the sun's going to die. And with that, it takes out the whole solar system. So just going to Mars isn't good enough. We, and, and the closest habitable planets, you know, are so far away, you can't really get there in a human lifetime unless we come up with a way to go faster and speed of light. Mm -hmm. So in a very existential sense, for life to have uh, indefinite persistence in the long scheme of things, we have to solve that problem. Otherwise, you know, the end game on this is, is certain. And so, uh, to me, it's a, a much deeper purpose to, and, and anything you do to advance that, right. Being advanced in physics, advanced in energy, advanced in just helping humanity get a little further down the road to even figure out how to do that. Right. Not so, to mention the economics. So we've got one solar system here with resources in it, and there's an entire universe out there. That's I mean, right. You got to figure it's a great capitalistic opportunity. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So thinking with a, a mindset of abundance. So uh, anyway, after uh, FTL and, and there, we did a, a bunch of projects around aerospace type things, a robotic satellite company uh, helping uh, finance some, uh, you know, innovative technologies, went on to um, 
helped some other companies and, and most recently got recruited to be CEO of a financial services software company called Benetic, um, which I'm running today. Um, we help uh, investment management firms get better distribution and access in the 401k plans, which seems completely different than solving faster and light problems, except for the fact that it has a pervasive impact on helping people save for retirement and have better lives. Mm -hmm. And um, harkens back to uh, some deals we did 20 years ago in this space. And frankly, working with some great friends, the uh, one of the co-founders was a fraternity brother of mine at MIT. Uh, one of the top coders on the team was an aerospace engineer uh, at MIT like I was. So to me, it's as much at this point in life about working with the right people. And, um, you know, today being kind of the auspicious day of having sold my house and knock on wood, we'll see what happens if uh, the other house I put a bit on works out. We are moving to Nashville. Um, I say uh, for people who wanted to know my life story, just go read uh, Hillbilly Elgy by uh, J.D. Vance. Um, that was as close to my biography as we can get. Mm. Um, I grew up in Appalachia, Kentucky, actually not too far from J.D. Um, actually, I think we're distant cousins, but then again, most everyone in Kentucky <laughs> is, right? <laughs> Somehow I knew that joke was coming. <laughs> and uh, so many of the uh, stories from that book are parallels to mine. And um, anyway, ended up out here. And, and now, you know, uh, Nashville takes me not only closer to home, um, it takes me, uh, to a, a different chapter in life to capitalize on a, a whole set of opportunities, uh, a different change. And I think quality of life, you know, Silicon Valley is different today than it was 25 years ago. Very true. And, um, in a post COVID world, um, you know, I think the way people are going to work is going to be different. Uh, you know, I, I remember a mistake I made when September 11th happening, thinking it was transitory and we're still taking our shoes off to get on airplanes today. This is 10 X, a hundred X what September 11th was in terms of, uh, the fact that you and I are sitting here talking to each other with masks on mm -hmm. is insane. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, the, this will be felt for decades to come. I, you know, Neil Howe, when he wrote uh, The Fourth Turning, presaged this. And, um, you know, we've had pandemics in the past. I mean, we have pandemics for millennia, right? Mm -hmm. As long as humans have been around. It's because this one happened in the midst of the fourth turning that we're seeing the change that we're seeing. And once those things happen, at least if you follow Howe's thesis on the fourth turning, this is a persistent one, right? This is going to change the way we do things in many ways. So, um, there's always a silver lining or, or a, an upside to this on the other side. I mean, if and when a real pandemic comes where it's more virulent, right. more well, risky, it's actually deadly. Yeah. Then we're actually going to be prepared better. Yeah. Not saying this was great, but at least we'll be in better shape because uh, we'll learn from the mistakes we've made this time. So there is a, a benefit to the human tragedy that we're experiencing at this point. It is the cowpox hypothesis. We have this, pandemic which is again horrible terrible tragic but unlikely to kill more than one percent of the population even the worst case scenario versus something like the black death yep. which took out a third of the population of europe at the time well when you and i met four months ago mm -hmm. which seems like an eternity it was before this started right. um and we were commenting because i had just gotten back from new york and i was one of the few people 
who was wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you recall, we had a high range of uncertainty, right? And we were privileged enough to have data coming in from folks we knew in uh, Asia that sounded really scary. Yeah. And uh, I knew some folks who were really good at systems modeling, worked at the CDC, and their forecasts indicated up to two and a half million deaths based on the data they knew at that point. And that's what the government had to operate off of. Yeah. And we got so incredibly lucky because every one of those uncertainty variables in terms of transmission went in the right direction, right? Transmission rate, the mortality rate, the, you know, down the list, we got lucky on every mark. So, you know, even though this was a tragedy, it was not nearly as bad as the alternative could have been. And one of the things for people who are listening in, one of the reasons that Ray and I've stayed in touch over the years, besides our winning personalities is Ray is just, as you can tell, one of the smartest and deepest thinkers that I know, somebody who goes beneath the surface, doesn't just accept the conventional wisdom. And Ray has been a huge benefactor to me during this time, helping me think about what supplements to buy, what equipment to get. And, you know, again, I haven't had to put it into effect, but I am very grateful to Ray for all his guidance. <laughs> well, thanks, Chris. It's, uh, you know, I've been touched by how many people this has brought together in a common sense of helping each other, right? And bringing your respective skills or insights together to try and solve a very complex global systems problem. Now, before we move on to the project that we're here to discuss today, I just do want to circle back to your biographer for a second in the sense that, you know, you talked about growing up a la hillbilly elegy, and then you talked about your fraternity brothers at MIT, the brass rat and, Again, so what happened along the way to put you on the path to being an aero astro geek, becoming one of the smartest people in the world? All right. That's a loaded question. I think you're asking it because you've heard this story. So I'm in seventh grade uh, in a geography class. And, uh, you know, the the high school that I went to, I don't think anyone had ever gone to college out of state. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, if you really killed it, you went to University of Kentucky because that's where the Awesome basketball Go team, right? Exactly. And so my uh, my teacher asked me what I want to be when I grow up. And I said, well, I want to be an astronaut, you know. And uh, I was a product of watching Star Wars, you know, at a young age. Mm-hmm. And it, it had mm-hmm. deeply embedded into my psyche of a, uh, the um, archetype of the hero myth um, that George Lucas had so deeply put into that thing of the kid who lived on a farm and then went into space, right? Only it was a... A moisture farm, I believe, that Luke Skywalker That's was right. on. That's right. He had to work those evaporators. So um, not consciously realizing what was driving me there, I said, hey, I want to be an astronaut. And so my teacher said, well, well, MIT's where the astronauts go to school. I'd never heard of MIT, right? Um, this was a new one. I mean, I'm like, well, I know I want to be an astronaut, so this is the, the path. So I get home that night, and of course, there's no internet back then, right? So I call information, um, which back then, I think it was like a 10 cent or a dollar to to dial information and get this but i i got information i said i want the address for mit and they gave it to me 77 mass ave in cambridge massachusetts and i wrote a letter and i said hey i want to be an astronaut my teacher said this is where they go to school please send information you're in the seventh grade seventh grade yeah so you know, two months later uh info comes in the mail it's just a course catalog right but i look at it and open up and i'm like holy cow this is awesome right they've got this thing called aerospace engineering and it's got rocket science and like everything I want. I'm like, this is where I want to go to school. 
so time passed um and uh you know i'll say i had i was even though it was in appalachia kentucky I had some good teachers it wasn't really that competitive i mean i never did homework mm -hmm. um you didn't need to yeah i didn't need to <laughs> and so uh applied got in show up and i'm like one of 30 kids in the class who hadn't had calculus in high school right Actually, a, a guy who lived in the county next to me, Thomas Massey, uh, I think he was in the same bucket. We got to know each other through science fairs and that kind of thing, uh, who's now in the House of Representatives. Um, good guy. And um, uh, anyway, I get to school. I'm there for about a week and I realize, oh, my God. Right. I am so out of my out of my league here. And they pair you up with a faculty member who. Um, looks out for you. And mine happened to be the associate director of admissions. And so I go to her and I say, uh, you know, uh, you all made a mistake. I said, <laughs> this, this is, you know, we got to do something about this. And she said, well, let's take a look at your file. And she pulls this manila folder out of the file because back then they just kept it all in there and opens it up and paper clipped on the inside of this manila folder is this yellowed piece of paper the letter in my handwriting and she's she looked at it and she said we had to give you a chance That's and amazing. and so mit was pass fail uh freshman year and so you know the kids that went to good prep schools or whatever you know uh had a good time and you know i took that year and caught up and then it worked out fine after that and knowing mit uh, MIT is a place where us Stanford engineering students, we would go into the class and then we would hope there were no MIT transfers <laughs> because <laughs> MIT makes people work so insanely hard. It, I'm sure it's not quite as hard as like a, a Russian mathematics school, but it's still pretty hard. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, well, I, I will By always way, say for those of you, you guys can't see this because this is a podcast. But we're in Ray's office. I'm looking over right now, and I can see Ray's MIT diploma right over there. <laughs> Got it there. Well, I'll tell you, had my teacher told me how good the weather was in Stanford, I think I might have, you know, given that a second thought. But, <laughs> um, you know, the funny thing is my sister, who was uh, six years younger than me, came out to visit. So she's in middle school, mm -hmm. right? Has mind-blowing experience, right? And uh, I told her, I said, write letters to the school called Stanford, mm -hmm, MIT mm -hmm. and Harvard, mm -hmm. and tell them about yourself, right? Um, she ended up going to Stanford. So. I like that. <laughs> and she probably had a great time, too. Oh, she had a time of her life. Yeah, yeah. It's an incredible institution. Again, MIT is an incredible institution as well. It's just that uh, I would say, I describe it and say that Stanford's a little better at customer service. <laughs> <laughs> oh there you go so you know the irony of course is that here we are uh ray how many other advanced degrees do you have uh you know i stopped at uh just the grad school in aero astro so um uh you know i've gone and done a few things on the side for supplementals along the way but, but that's you, it. you have the masters of science in aeronautics and astronautics so you're a literal rocket scientist yeah yeah and then I, of course, uh, have two degrees from Stanford and an MBA from HBS, Harvard Business School. So we're all highly educated, big brain guys. <laughs> but the topic that we actually want to write about is a book idea that we're fleshing out 
called The Genius of Dumb. Now, what are two guys, Stanford, MIT, Harvard, doing writing The Genius of Dumb? Like, what the heck do we know about this? <laughs> well, I guess it started when you and I were uh, trying to debate and penetrate um, some successful communication strategies mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that applied not just to startups and marketing, uh, but also to politics. And, you know, you always kind of come around to the, you know, you think about it from an investor's point of view or from a business point of view, you're trying to communicate a message to customers and you know the topic or you should know the topic way better than your audience. And so you're always trying to be more clear uh, in, in how you communicate to get that message across to help people understand. And as we, uh, you know, got the the notion of you know dumb it down right yeah. make it simpler mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um there was this notion of you know what there's a there's a there's a whole like methodology a process to simplification to help people achieve greater understanding or insight and it's not just a, a simple principle it's like it's a genius idea when you look at the success some people have had on this you know we we talked about um for example, uh, a smartphone, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we had, you know, Blackberries. We had, uh, you know, the Motorola. It, there were all these people who had smartphones, right? right? Palm and PDQ. They had this. Yeah, I had Palm a Palm Pilot, Pilot. merged with a, a cell phone. Yeah. Enormous brick. And Silicon Valley was all over smartphones. It's yeah. coming. It's coming. And yet, it never achieved mass adoption until someone created the dumb phone. It's a phone that anyone could use, and yet the genius, you don't call it a dumb phone, right? right. Steve Jobs called it an iPhone. Exactly. Because no one was going to buy the dumb phone, right? But they did buy the iPhone, which was a dumbed-down version of a smartphone. It's got one button. Exactly. One button. So you can't screw it up, right? It's like, how simple can you make it? One button, right? Um, and so then, you know, when we thought about it, we were like, well, let's think about other places where this mm -hmm. is applied, right? And, um, you know, uh, everyone talks about Donald Trump and the current uh, environment of things. And he's made this comment in the past where he's like, you know, I used to use big words to describe certain things. Like I would say someone was unsophisticated. And he's like, you know, um, a lot of people don't know what that word means. He's like, you know, and so he's like, so I just call him stupid, right? So there's a... <laughs> Everyone knows what stupid means. That's right. And and when you compare, and people have actually done this analysis during the campaign, they looked at uh, a, a paragraph that of, of words that Trump used in debating Hillary Clinton, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then you compare those two, and half of the words that Hillary used were literally unintelligible to a majority of the population, whereas every word that Trump used was, you know, really basic, simple, right? And he consciously modulated his vocabulary to achieve that effect. And it worked, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people would look at Trump and say he's stupid or he's unsophisticated because of his word choice. When in fact, because it was actually consciously used to recognize, you know, he wasn't communicating to the elite, to the the, the Harvard MBAs, right. right? He's like, um, winning an election is about getting the most votes or, or well, 
people would even say, Hillary got the most votes, but the most votes in the states where the electoral college mattered. Exactly. And so how do you do that? You get it where people actually understand what the hell you're saying and vote for you, right? So that was pretty genius, right? Um, and so we're like, there's there's a thread here, right? If you make things simple, if you dumb them down, there's a genius strategy behind that. And that's the thing, you know, people use these fancy words because they want to feel smart. They feel like, oh, I'm going to speak in a sophisticated way. And then people will see that I'm smart. But that's actually dumb, right? Why would you speak in a way that people can't understand? Why are you going to make it harder for you to achieve what you're setting out to do? There is a Zen simplicity and sophistication, to use a word with too many syllables in it, in going straight to the point. And putting it in terms that the majority of the mass market can understand. Yeah. Um, and, and so the, the gap between um, people who come up with some of these ideas and the mass market adoption, right, is thinking about what are they going to understand? It's, is it one button? Do I use the word stupid? Um, or let's say there, there's another part which creates... Um, and, and think about the insecurity a lot of people have in approaching, I'll call it the smart solution, mm -hmm, okay? Mm -hmm. um, because they went through uh, our education system, which, you know, if you're gifted, right, it, is one experience. Right. If you're not, it's a very different experience. That's right. And it's reinforced into you, hey, you weren't at the top of the class, and that's not a great experience to have gone through, right, in the way that's structured. But now you've got that, you know, thing in your mind. So when you approach something complicated, you're going to not necessarily engage with it the same way. So let's say I go to buy a book about something, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If I want to learn about it, someone made a, 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 you know, a whole franchise off of the dummy's guide to X. That's right. right? Even though it's the same damn book with a different title, they just changed it around because by putting the dummy's guide to X, Suddenly all these people are like, oh, I can access that and not feel intimidated. And this is the hilarious thing. This is a sign. There are actually two series. One is the idiot's guy to, and the other is X for dummies. And the genius of dumbness that you just exhibited is those two merge in people's minds. They're like, give me that, uh, give me that dummies guide. And they're like, well, just give them one of them. Doesn't matter. Just go buy it. Exactly. So it, it was a genius marketing move Absolutely. Huge to success. lower the expectation to eliminate the intimidation of learning something new, right? Uh, someone should create like, you know, the idiot's college, right? And That's a lot of people right. would be like, you know what? I didn't think of going to college, but I could go to the idiot's college. <laughs> I have been saying, and I think this is one of the things that touched on this. I've been saying for a while, I want to write a book called... Uh, Let's see, I think, let me get this exactly right. It's poor, obscure, and homely. Your guide to succeeding in life when the deck is stacked against you. Because let me tell you, most people don't go around thinking, I'm like George Clooney. I'm one of the handsomest men alive. I'm a rich, famous actor. Let me start a, uh, let me start a, a tequila company, become even richer. What can any of us learn from that? But all of us can learn from being a success, even if we're poor, obscure, and homely. Same thing. This is going to be part of a whole franchise. <laughs> I love it. I love it. 
um, the more that uh, I, I think that this kind of comes back to empathy mm-hmm. and, and thinking not about how do I feel or approach things, but how do other people engage with these types of issues, right? And uh, it's not to say that other people are dumb. What you're simply doing is, let's say, let's lower the expectation, let's remove the intimidation mm-hmm. because they're not dumb. They're just intimidated by how the world and the system has kind of created that impression to allow them to then access it, right? And that ties in really well with your biography, right? Because here you are, you're an MIT graduate with two fancy degrees that I can see over there on the diploma, uh, involved in elite pursuits like venture capital and investing and technology companies and things like that. And in this world, we're surrounded by people who grew up with privilege, who did not have the kind of background, who grew up in one of these coastal elite cities and things like that. And I think you have this really important word, empathy, right? You can understand what someone who's growing up in a smaller town in Kentucky feels like because that was you. You look in the mirror and you see that person still, although admittedly much better dressed at this point. <laughs> well, I, I, it, it's, um, I, I think that I hadn't thought about it that way, mm-hmm. but it's a great point, right? Because um, my friends uh, that I grew up with, um, smart people, yeah, right? Absolutely. Um, they just, I got lucky that my geography teacher said, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? That teacher then threw out, you know, three three letters. Now, okay, I did something about it and followed up on it. Absolutely. But any of those kids, right? And I know several of them, very bright kids, had that potential, right? right. They just didn't have the door opened uh, necessarily. And so... Um, but I knew them and and still friends with a lot of them. Right. And so you say for that whole community of folks, how do you bridge the gap of Silicon Valley technology or not just Silicon Valley, but this is the epicenter where we sit, right? right. Is to think about how do you bring technologies to the masses, things uh, to the broader population from with a marketing message or with a communication strategy that embodies empathy and not from a, a place of superiority or or arrogance uh but instead to say let's make it easy you know let's let's and we're not going to call it a dumb phone we call it an iphone right and it's not because people are dumb but i think it is kind of catchy you call it the genius of dumb oh, right absolutely. just as a, I, a play on words exactly I, my spidey senses went off but it absolutely is the case again genius of dumb is not about hey these people are idiots the genius is dumb is about empathy and saying people are not idiots in fact they're quite capable but they exist in a very different context and why would you choose a context and a form of communication that would exclude them right like that is in fact one of the most unempathetic things that you could do right the genius of dumb is how to think in an inclusive way how to think in an empathetic way uh, how to think in a compassionate way how to um put your ego aside right that's the genius part right because you get your ego in the way and then suddenly you start uh forgetting about how to reach other people and you become more concerned with appearances and how people see you rather than the impact you actually have on other people yeah 
and that is why it is so important that we are going to be working on the genius of dumb with you in your beautiful new home in nashville and me stuck in my tiny cramped lodgings here in silicon valley <laughs> well i look forward to uh having you over to uh the back porch we can uh, have some mint juleps and uh some good barbecue I will be looking forward to it, and I know how big your house is, so I am going to be looking forward to staying because I'm a cheap-ass bastard. I'm not paying for a hotel. <laughs> I'm coming to stay with you. Look forward to having you, Chris. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ray. All right. Take care.